My name is Ros Savage and I'm here in Darwin College to talk about extreme rowing, which I know a thing or two about, having rowed solo across three oceans, the Atlantic, Pacific and Indian, a distance of about 15,000 miles in all. So good evening and welcome to the fourth of the 2017 Darwin College lectures on the theme of extremes. Last week's lecture was on dealing with extremism. This week, we turn to the physical extreme. What can a body do? Now, the boat race is looming in a couple of months, but for many in Cambridge, extreme rowing is now. And here, it's training for the Lent bumps. Icy cold, soaking wet, howlingly windy, and to the, add to the mix, of course, here in Cambridge, we have violent swans. <laughs> Early morning training on the cam is extreme, the Alcatraz of sport. For the May bumps, there are elegant drinks, picnics, and summer attire along the banks, but the lengths are a different matter indeed. So tonight's speaker knows all about extremes. Ros Savage stroked Oxford first women's boat in the uh, women's boat race in 1989. I don't know whether she found the Thames a little narrow, but she then became the first woman to row solo across three oceans, Atlantic, Pacific, and Indian. Now, I've spent uh, weeks in a small research ship in mid-Atlantic and experienced plenty of unpleasant weather, and I would most certainly not have wanted to have been alone in a 20-plus foot rowing boat. And although I've seen all three oceans from both sides, I managed to cross them with a bit of help from Sir Frank Whittle, you know, and the addition of warm meals and a movie and a window to look down upon the waves. Doing it the hard way is more than overcoming the physical extreme. It's really testing the emotional and psychological walls the Spartan discipline of finding the limits of the human body and mind. So, luckily, we have a true Spartan here to tell us about overcoming these challenges, and I'm delighted to introduce and welcome Ros Savage, who's flown in from the US, especially to talk to us. And as you can see, she will be speaking on extreme rowing. So, Ros. Thank you. Thank you for that kind introduction. Your style of crossing an ocean sounds much more sensible and appealing than mine. Good evening. It's a real pleasure to be here in Cambridge to take part in this lecture series on extremes. I'd like to thank Julius for inviting me, um, my wonderful manager Miriam for coordinating, and my partner Howard for dashing across the country from a meeting in Swindon to be here this evening. And I'd like to thank all of you for battling through the, the cold to get here too. I'm here tonight to talk about extreme rowing. If you thought it was about extreme rowing, um, then I'm sorry, but you're in the wrong place. Um, you'll have to tune into the Brexit negotiations for that. Before I rowed my first ocean, I suppose I thought it would bear some resemblance 
to the crew rowing that I'd done at Oxford. But about 3,000 miles longer, that was all. Um, I was very, very wrong for two main reasons. First, even in a good year, that would not be true. Being able to row is really only about 1% of what it takes to row across an ocean. The rest is seamanship, survival, logistics, and sheer bloody-mindedness. And second, the year that I chose was not a good year. It was 2005, when there were far and away more named storms in the Atlantic that year than any other year since records began. 28 named storms compared with the next worst year had a mere 20, including Hurricane Katrina, by the way. To give you a quick insight into what that looked like from my perspective, I'd like to start out by just showing a, a short video um, of, shall we say, the lowlights from my Atlantic voyage. It's just about three minutes long. Good day. My right shoulder blade is giving me serious jip. Quite a bit of pain with the, the shoulder and stuff. All kind of crusty and ugh. My bum is really sore. Just keep going, just keep rowing. It's the trouble with oceans. It seems to be always not enough of something or too much of it. Absolute dead calm. And this is choppy compared with what it was like first thing. The wind is pushing me south, it's being pushed north, now south of Antigua, more south. weary and I've been out here for too long and I can't get on the phone to have a whinge to anybody else. Very, very hard going. Oh my god, but it's going to be hard. A strong urge just to curl up in my bunk. <laughs> Tired, pissed off, sore. Yeah. It's tough. It's tough to take. 
Amidst all that whinging, the most pertinent phrase was, just keep going, just keep rowing. And that's what I'd like to talk about tonight, that many things that appear extreme are in fact the accumulation of a vast number of tiny actions, or sometimes inactions, that added together produce massive results, be that individually or collectively. We tend to overestimate how much we can get done in one day, as my <laughs> ever over-optimistic to-do list will bear witness, and how much we can get done over time with the consistent and persistent application of effort. This law, let's call it the second law of ocean rowing, the first law being don't leave the boat, applies to almost any realm of human endeavour. I'm specifically going to focus on three areas. Masochistic feats of physical endurance, personal transformation, and creating our collective future as a species. And further, I'd like to contend that the actions that we choose to take consistently over time, the course that we set, in effect, are a function of the inner narratives we hold about who we are, what life is for, and how the world works. I'm going to, to the best of my ability as an amateur psychologist, draw on a number of concepts from psychology with a soupçon of neuroscience and illustrate them by reference to the story that I know best, and that is my own life story. And I offer that story not because I think it's unique, but quite the opposite, that I think my life and adventures illustrate universal aspects of the human condition. Few of us would be so foolish as to row across oceans, but many of us will ask questions about how we can live a meaningful life and what legacy we leave when we're gone. I'd like to start by inviting you to join me on one particular evening back in the late 1990s. At the time, I'm in my early 30s. I've come home late after a long day in the office at my job as a management consultant. And I'm sitting at the kitchen table in my little house in West London. I'm writing in my journal. I often write in my journal, but this evening, I'm doing something different. I'm trying out a thought experiment loosely adapted from Stephen R. Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I'm imagining that I'm nearing the end of my life and looking back over it to evaluate how I've spent my time on this earth. And I'm doing this exercise twice over. The first version is the fantasy obituary. And the second one is going to be the version that I'm actually heading for if I carry on as I am. As I write that first version, I think about the people whose obituaries I really enjoy reading in the newspaper. They're the people who seem to have really got out there and lived life to the full, almost fearlessly. They tried all sorts of things, maybe succeeded, maybe failed, but even if they fail, they pick themselves up and dust themselves off and, and try again. They learn the lessons and push onwards. Their lives are lived densely, richly, colourfully, courageously. These are lives really worth living. And as I'm writing this, it feels so real to me. My pen is flying across the paper, and I'm feeling really excited about this amazing life that I'm having. So when I reach the end and sit back with a sigh of satisfaction, I have to 
slap myself on the forehead and remind myself that that was just the fantasy version, not the real one. And then I write the second one, which is the obituary that I'm heading for if I carry on as I am. And it's pleasant and nice and safe, but I realize then that that's just not how I want to be living. What I thought was going to fulfill me, having this, this career and a decent paycheck at the end of the month, isn't really working for me. That fantasy obituary didn't say anything about the size of my house or how many cars I would have. So compared with the Technicolor fantasy version, that real one looks rather beige by comparison. Annie Dillard said, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. And I realized in that moment, as I look at these two different versions of my own obituary, that the way I'm spending my days is not the way that I want to spend my life. Some things are going to have to change. At the time, I thought maybe I was just having an early midlife crisis. All my friends seemed perfectly happy with their, their yuppie lifestyles. So it must be something wrong with me if it wasn't working for me. I seemed to be the odd one out, the only one for whom this lifestyle wasn't fulfilling me or making me happy. It was a few years later on that I found out I wasn't special at all, that Jung had identified this concept of individuation, where we go through this phase where we want to separate ourselves from the collective and figure out who we really are as distinct individuals. What it really did for me in doing that exercise was not only to show me that I was on the track, but also by taking that perspective at the end of my life, reminding me that even though, um, obviously, through my teens and 20s, I felt completely immortal, um, it reminded me that if I was going to lead a different kind of life, I didn't have forever to do it. That obituary exercise literally changed the course of my life. I wish I could tell you that I went into the office the next day and uh, quit my job and uh, strode purposefully out of the office to go and row across oceans, but I wasn't quite at that stage yet. A few more things needed to be figured out before I could really get in alignment with that vision. But I do start realigning. Fast forward about six years, and I'm a long way from West London. I'm alone on a 23-foot rowboat, about 12 miles off the coast of Lagomera in the Canaries. It's 6 p.m., and it's getting dark. And I'm hanging over the side of the boat, being horribly seasick, and really wondering what the heck I'm doing here. What am I doing here? It's now several years since I quit my job, since when I've dabbled in various short-lived careers, no doubt convincing my parents and my friends that I've totally lost the plot. I've been a photographer, an organic baker, an aspiring coffee shop owner. I travelled around Peru for three months, discovering Inca ruins, writing a book, and having an environmental awakening. And that environmental awakening has a lot to do with why I'm here. After seeing the retreating glaciers in Peru and living with an indigenous Andean people, I've become passionately concerned about the way that we're treating our planet and vowed that no matter how insignificant my contribution might be, I just have to find a way to make a difference. Shortly thereafter, I happened to meet at the Royal Geographical Society a young man called Dan Biles, who'd rode across the Atlantic with somebody rather unusual. 
For an army guy, you might find it quite surprising that he chose to row across the Atlantic with his mum. Uh, I must confess, at the time, rowing across oceans did not strike me as a fun thing to do. As he described it, the only part that really appealed to me was that every evening at around sunset, they would sit down and have a gin and tonic. Um, presumably no ice. Um, that part I thought I could cope with. But the idea must have lodged somewhere in my subconscious because it was just a few months later as I was driving along in my camper van, minding my own business, that the insane idea popped into my head that maybe this would work. I could row across oceans and use that as my platform to raise awareness for environmental challenges through my blogs and through talks and through books. I would say that I'm spiritual rather than religious, um, despite or maybe because of having two Methodist preachers for parents. In fact, if we have any Methodists in the, I nearly said congregation then, whoops, um, in, the, in the audience tonight, my father was actually the minister at Castle Street Methodist Church here in Cambridge. Do we have anybody from Castle Street here tonight? Oh, I guess Methodism's dying out a little bit. Um, but regardless um, of my spiritual views, this call to action did feel almost like a vocational calling. At that time, I wasn't yet aware of Joseph Campbell's book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. But now that I know that this call to adventure is the first step in the aspiring hero's journey. And true to the classic structure, at first, I refused the call. And by the way, I'm not for a moment claiming to be a hero. Um, it is just this, this narrative arc that so many of our stories and films follow. And the whole point is that the hero isn't a hero at the start, just a normal mortal. So I think my, in my heart, I already knew that this was the perfect project. But my head was coming up with all sorts of excuses, little details like, but you've never been to sea before. Or, but you know you don't really like exercise. Or, who the hell do you think you are? Ranulph Fines. So for a week, I tried to talk myself out of this ridiculous idea. But eventually, my head caught up with what my heart already knew, that this was exactly what I'd been looking for, a perfect way to get on track for that fantasy obituary, and at the same time, to draw people's attention to our environmental issues. And after all, very much in keeping with the theme of this lecture series, extreme times call for extreme measures. So now here I am in my shiny new rowboat, setting out to row 3,000 miles across the Atlantic. I'm just a few hours into the voyage and already having some pretty serious doubts about the wisdom of the idea. However, I do think there's a lot to be said for having enough naive optimism to get yourself into something and too much stubborn pride to get yourself back out of it. So although I spent that first night absolutely terrified, curled up in the fetal position in my sleeping cabin, alone on the dark ocean, being buffeted by large waves, Dawn found me still at the oars, hanging on in there. So this might be a good time just to outline some basics of ocean rowing. It had taken me 14 months to get ready for the Atlantic, buying a boat and kitting it out, attempting and mostly failing to raise sponsorship, training for up to 16 hours in a day on the rowing machine. Uh, for five Sundays in a row, I would do four shifts of four hours with an hour off in between. 
starting at about lunchtime on a Sunday and finishing at breakfast on a Monday morning. I also had to take courses in celestial navigation, basic meteorology, marine communications, first aid and sea survival. I would be completely alone for the duration of the voyage, no support boat, so I had to take 100 days worth of food with me. I also had a water maker on board that sucks in salt water and turns it into fresh water through a process of reverse osmosis. I had a satellite phone to communicate with shore and a little palm top computer, those things that we used to have before they invented smartphones, um, which I could use to write my blog posts. I could recharge all these electronics from the ship's batteries that were connected to solar panels. I had a huge first aid kit that weighed about as much as I do, and a toolkit in case of any problems with my body or boat. The boat itself was made of carbon fibre, was 23 feet long, 6 feet wide, and with two enclosed cabins, one for sleeping and one for storage. My bathroom was pretty minimal, it was a bucket and sponge and a bedpan. As to what a typical day looked like, I wouldn't want to miss the sunrise. It was one of the visual highlights of the day. So I'd wake up with the first glimmering of the dawn. I'd reach out my hand from the sleeping bag and turn on the GPS to find out where I'd gone overnight. While the GPS was triangulating, I'd get out of my bunk and grab a raw food snack bar to munch on while I filled out the logbook. Into the logbook, I would write the latitude and longitude, miles to go, wind speed and direction, the charge in the ship's batteries, and write one line about whatever was on my mind. And um, that varied from the joyous to the profane, depending on whether I'd gone forwards, backwards, or sideways during the night. Then I'd take my, my rowing pad and a fresh seat cover and leave the safety of my sleeping cabin and head out to the rowing seat on the deck. Throughout the day, I'd row four shifts of three hours with an hour off in between and a 10-minute break in every hour. During the breaks, I would grab a snack, update the logbook, and tend to the bean sprouts that I grew in a little pot to supplement my mostly dehydrated diet with something fresh. And I tended to time my dinner break to coincide with the sunset. I was rowing west across the ocean, but of course rowers face backwards, so I was always facing east. Um, I definitely got a better suntan on my south side, um, not too much moss on the north side. Um, so if I wanted to see the sunset, then I had to take a break from rowing. And um, it was so well worth seeing those amazing panoramic sunsets at sea, an uninterrupted 360-degree view of the horizon. My favourite part of the day was after the last rowing shift, when I would brush my teeth while looking up at the sky. On a clear night, the stars could be absolutely amazing, so far away from light pollution. I always watched out for Orion rising, my mate Orion, and I've never seen the Milky Way so clearly as I did at sea. It also made a really big difference which moon phase it was. It's a bit blurry, but as you can imagine, it's quite difficult taking a nighttime photo from a very tippy rowboat. A full moon could be so bright that I could see moon shadows, once I even saw a moonbow, which is like a rainbow, but at night. Um, while on an overcast night, sometimes I could barely see the hand in front of my face. My last task of the day, which was a real labour of love, because all I wanted to do was to curl up in my bunk and go to sleep, 
Um, but I had to write my blog and upload it to the internet. I would tap it out on the little palm top, add a photo, and then connect the palm top to my satellite phone and try and coax the phone into maintaining a connection for long enough for me to upload the blog update um, to my website. It was an incredibly slow and extremely expensive um, satellite connection. It was like the slowest dial-up that you've ever seen. A very long way from broadband. And if the signal dropped during the transmission, I had to start all over again. On a bad night, this could involve quite a lot of time and quite a lot of swearing. Um, and yes, if you've read any news reports about ocean rowers, they always talk about how they row naked. And yes, we do. It's just easier. So anyway, let's move on swiftly from that visual image. Um, as you saw in the video earlier, that maiden voyage was quite the suffer fest. And I wasn't always quite the intrepid adventurer that I might have wished. There's a sailor saying that life is easier in the storms, and I certainly found that to be true. At least when I was busy repairing oars or battling with the sea anchor, I had something very real to focus on. For me, the more difficult times came when I was left alone with my thoughts, lamenting the early loss of my stereo. Uh, for the first month, the weather had been too overcast for me to have enough electricity from the solar panels to use the stereo. And then when the sun finally came out and I was able to use it, it expired from rust about two days later. So for the better part of three and a half months, I was left alone with my own thoughts. And that was quite a challenge for me. In his memoir, Walden, Henry David Thoreau writes, it's easier to sail many thousand miles through cold and storm and cannibals in a government ship with 500 men and boys to assist one than it is to explore the private sea, the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean of one's being alone. So I can't help but wonder what Thoreau would have made of my decision to simultaneously tackle both the metaphorical inner ocean of solitude and the literal ocean of cold and storms, but fortunately not too many cannibals. This kind of extreme solitude is really very interesting in ways that I might not have expected. Solitary confinement has long been used as one of the most severe forms of punishment, and here I was doing solitary with hard labour. And in my experience, spending prolonged time alone, especially in a situation involving a considerable degree of stress, can take the mind into some quite dark places. But it also gives the mind the time and space to really think things through and come up with ways to be okay with those dark places. To develop the strength to sit there in that darkness without trying to run away from it or shine a light into it, but simply to be there in the lonely recesses of your own psyche was often incredibly uncomfortable, but ultimately led me to much greater self-knowledge an acceptance of the things that I couldn't change about myself, and a confidence in my own ability to think things through and figure out a better way to do them. It enabled me to slow down and concentrate, focus and pay attention. Like Vipassana retreat on steroids, uh, although it was not much fun at the time, this was tremendously empowering. Um, as William Derezowicz, I hope I pronounced that correctly, 
rather counterintuitively said, if you want others to follow, learn to be alone with your own thoughts. In our hectic 21st century world, when we're bombarded daily with media, noise, information, stories, fake news, conversation and advertising, when multitasking and busyness are idolised, I feel like it was a real privilege to literally step off the earth and spend several months immersed in nature and solitude. I certainly wouldn't have chosen to have the stereo break, but in retrospect, I'm very glad that it did. Also, life can get quite strange when we're not in relation to other people. I found that when I wasn't being somebody's daughter or sibling or friend or partner or colleague, it was almost like I started narrating my own life on the boat, as if in the absence of any observer, I, I had to create one. I also felt that I could peel away the layers of identity that, that we adopt as we go through life and go in search of whatever lay at the core of those layers. So you might be wondering, what did I find at the core? If you're expecting some cosmic revelation, I hate to disappoint you. I found what felt like nothing, which was actually not a bad thing. It was weirdly liberating. For blissful moments of time, I would be unaware of being Caucasian, female, British, 30-whatever years old, Oxford graduate, recovering management consultant, all those other identities that we layer onto ourselves. I was just a rower on a very big ocean, along with a load of creatures that were much better adapted to this environment than I was. Life got even more interesting when my satellite phone also stopped working, 24 days before the end of the voyage. I hadn't been using the phone a lot because it is seriously expensive, mostly just a quick daily call to my mother to let her know that I was still okay. As you can possibly imagine, my mother had not been delighted when her elder daughter announced that she was going to row solo across the Atlantic, um, especially as we'd lost my father just the year before. Oh, and my sister was travelling alone around the world at the time and had just gone incommunicado in Nepal. So um, my poor mother had quite a lot on her plate. Maybe selfishly, uh, though, the, the demise of my phone was transformative for me in a very positive way. Up until that point, it had been the way that I received weather forecasts. And if I had a good weather forecast, I'd get really excited about the good mileage that I was going to make. If it was a bad forecast, I'd get really anxious and fearful about the upcoming storm. And you know what weather forecasts are like, most of the time it was wrong anyway. But meanwhile, I'd been on this emotional roller coaster um, of fearful dread or eager anticipation. To paraphrase Mark Twain, I had a lot of worries on the ocean, most of which never happened. But when the phone broke, my mindset completely transformed. I had no idea what the future was going to bring me. From then on, it was going to be just me, my little boat, this very big ocean, and whatever weather Mother Nature chose to dole out to me. There was a kind of serenity in this lack of information really no choices to be made other than the choice just to keep showing up and sticking my oars in the water. Another short video which sums up how I felt. Sunday the 19th of February, my second day without any contact with the outside world. 
and I can't tell you, I'm just, I'm loving it. I have never known peace like it. I'm starting to feel that I'm regaining my energy. I've just been rowing along this afternoon feeling so serene and calm. It's just been one of those really magic moments. Um, if I could bottle that feeling, I'd make millions. It's better than any drug. Just the feeling of total self-sufficiency, self-reliance. Just me and my little boat in the middle of the ocean. Just happy and content. I've never known peace like it. It's an absolute, total peace. Yeah, there's no other word for it. Um, made it all worthwhile, all the agony, all the suffering, all the pain, all the self-doubt. It's been worth it just for that feeling that I've experienced this afternoon. And by the way, that's what hair looks like when it hasn't been washed for three months. <laughs> um, to come back to uh, Campbell's analysis of the, the hero's journey, the hero ventures forth from the ordinary world into an extraordinary parallel world of supernatural wonder where she encounters fabulous forces and vanquishes dragons. Finally, the hero returns from this magical world with new insights or boons to share with her fellow man. I would say that despite the stormy conditions that year, the dragons I faced were, were mostly myself. They were mostly in here. Given that there was only one person on the boat, it's quite astonishing how many near mutinies we had, uh, with a lazy devil on one shoulder battling with a rather irritating disciplinarian angel on the other shoulder. Moving on to the boons, um, I'd like to offer you three this evening. These may or may not seem new to you, but I shed a lot of sweat and tears and occasionally even blood to figure these out, so I, I trust that they were worth the trouble. The first one is how to navigate a course. On the one hand, it's really important to set the right course because errors get compounded over time. So even if you're just one or half a degree off at the outset, if you stay on that course, then after a few thousand miles, you're going to be a long way from where you wanted to be. On the other hand, no matter how you set out, you still have to check on a frequent basis to make sure that you're on track. It's said that an aeroplane is off course 99% of the time, but because the autopilot's constantly correcting for headwinds, sidewinds, updrafts and downdrafts, the plane still ends up where it's supposed to be, on the runway. For me, even though I was course correcting many times a day, I was very much at the mercy of winds and currents. Sometimes the elements simply wouldn't let me go the way that I wanted to go, and I'd have to make best efforts, hoping that conditions would be more favourable later on. Other days, I would have to make the difficult choice between making fast progress aligned with the elements or making a lot less progress but in a better direction, which usually involved bashing sideways across the waves. Extremely uncomfortable, but sometimes it just had to be done because the, the absolute priority was not to end up in a situation where my weatherman would say, you can't get there from here. In other words, I just wouldn't have the horsepower to cut across the winds and currents to where I wanted to be. 
we all get buffeted by the winds and currents of life, I suppose. So I feel like there's quite a, a lot of metaphorical value here. We might well feel like we're off course 99% of the time. And in my experience, the most important thing was me, for me to focus on why I was doing this, not how I was going to get to my destination. Weirdly, I always had this confidence that I was going to get to Antigua in one piece, even though there were definitely days when I wasn't sure how I was going to stay safe and sane for that long. It's not that I was courageous. I certainly wasn't, certainly not when I set out. But my motivation was just huge. This combination of my personal quest to find out what I was capable of and the environmental mission. Although I realise it might be controversial to suggest such a thing in an august institution of learning such as Darwin College, I sometimes wonder, looking back, if it was a curse rather than a blessing that I was good at passing exams. I got very good at jumping through other people's hoops. And when I graduated and looked out at a hoopless future, I was overwhelmed by the range of opportunities that lay in front of me. I had no idea how to narrow my options, no way to know where to set my course. And it was during those years between my life as a management consultant and setting out to row across the ocean that I really started to figure out, belatedly, what I wanted to do when I grew up. And a very important step in that was for me to get rid of my fears. For a long time, having been successful at so many things, I had this terrible fear of failure and ended up being really held back by that. I was afraid to do something in case it didn't work out the way I wanted it to, which meant there were an awful lot of really cool things that I didn't try. I was afraid of being an outcast or appearing foolish or being overambitious or unrealistic, fear of how it would look on my CV if I didn't succeed. But uh, Warren Buffett has got some words of advice on this, and I believe he's done reasonably well for himself. He says, take a job that you love. You'll jump out of bed in the morning. I think you're out of your mind if you keep taking jobs that you don't like because you think it will look good on your resume. Isn't that a little like saving up sex for your old age? <laughs> Rather more poetically, Howard Thurman wrote, don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and go do that because what the world needs is people who've come alive. But for me, there was also this element, the crucial element of wanting to serve some bigger purpose. There were many, many days when if it had been all about my quest to find out what I was capable of, that would not have been enough to keep me going. I needed the environmental mission as well, but at the same time, I didn't want to be entirely a martyr to the environmental cause. I wanted to grow as a person too. I needed both of those, and where those, the inner and the outer motivation overlapped, that was the sweet spot. And if I needed validation that I was on the right path, life definitely showed up and delivered. I found that fortune does indeed favour the bold. All kinds of amazing people appeared in my life and continued to appear to help me make my vision a reality. Although I'm completely solo when I'm out on the ocean, there's no way I could have done what I've done without the help of countless people over the years who've lent a hand, lent a home, taken care of shopping lists, sponsored a mile, sent a supportive email just when I needed it, helped me manage my social media, or otherwise been an indispensable part of this massive undertaking. And I'd like to take this chance to acknowledge 
their huge generosity of time, money and support. Once I'd set a course, my next challenge and my second boon was how to keep on going. I'd always been really great at planning, wonderful at making an Excel spreadsheet with all of the things that I needed to do. But of course, the scary bit is when you have to actually do the thing, which is rather an important part. Having spent a total of 520 days at sea, covering about 15,000 miles, I feel like I am now reasonably well qualified to talk about how to keep on going. As I've already mentioned, athletic motivation does not come easily to me. Inside this extreme rower, there is a couch potato desperately trying to get out and sometimes succeeding. So I had to develop strategies, and a lot of them, to keep myself on the rowing seat when I'd rather be doing anything else. I suppose it does help that there just aren't really that many things to do on a small rowboat other than row. The most successful strategy for me was to make it a question of identity, or to put it a different way, to change the story that I was telling myself about who I am. Did I want to be the kind of rower who exhibited discipline, determination, and dedication? Or did I want to be the kind of rower who slacked off and skipped shifts and lazed around in my bunk? I also found as another strategy that I could reframe situations to make them seem like more of a blessing and less of a curse. And I'd like to offer an example. I'm a month or so into the Atlantic crossing and I'm having a fairly typical day at the oars. Since my stereo had broken, I'm just there with my own thoughts day in, day out. Researchers tell us that about 90% of our thoughts are the same thoughts that we had the day before. And I would say that on the ocean, that's a fairly conservative estimate. I felt like all my thoughts were the same ones I'd had the day before, and a lot of them revolved around how little I enjoy physical exercise. So all in all, I was pretty sick of myself. This particular day, I was in an especially negative frame of mind, focusing on how uncomfortable everything was. I had tendonitis in my shoulders, saltwater sores on my bottom. I was having to pop painkillers like Smarties. My sleeping bag was damp and mouldy. Everything takes 10 times as long to do on a boat as it does on dry land. And the ocean had developed this annoying habit of plopping a wave into my dinner just as I was about to eat it. I'm not kidding, this definitely happened with way above average regularity. So my thoughts are going round and around on this theme of discomfort, discomfort, discomfort. And then I realised something in the run-up to the voyage, whenever anybody had asked me why I was doing this ridiculous thing, I had intrepidly declared that I wanted to get outside my comfort zone. And as I'm sitting on the boat, I go, oh, you know what? Getting outside my comfort zone, I guess that's going to require a certain amount of discomfort. Hmm. So my enormous discomfort was not, in fact, a sign of failure. It was exactly what I had wished for. By reframing my situation in that way, I was able to completely flip my attitude to the discomfort and spend the rest of the day being quite cheerfully miserable about how dreadful this all was. Now, not for a, a moment to compare my entirely uh, voluntary suffering with being in a concentration camp, but 
I've been constantly inspired by the words of Viktor Frankl in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. Even in the midst of the horror of Auschwitz, he was able to reframe his situation and to perceive it as a test presented to him by life. He wrote, we needed to stop asking about the meaning of life and instead to think of ourselves as those who were being questioned by life, daily and hourly. Life ultimately means taking the responsibility to find the right answer to its problems and to fulfill the tasks which it constantly sets for each individual. When a man finds that it's his destiny to suffer, he will have to accept his suffering as his task, his single and unique task. In other words, no matter what's happening, it's entirely possible to reframe one's inner narrative so as to give oneself a sense of agency and resourcefulness rather than helplessness and victimhood. And when I look back over my life story, it does seem that at any point where I changed course and made the surprising decision or took the road less travelled, I can see that there was a fundamental shift in my inner narrative. A lot of our narrative is subconscious, laid down in childhood, when we don't really have any filter on, on what's going in there. And we only become aware of it later in life when we find ourselves behaving in a, a counterproductive or self-sabotaging way. And the good thing about those moments is that it brings our narrative into consciousness. And once we're conscious of it, we can do something to rewrite our narrative. We can use our free will to overcome that subconscious conditioning. My thoughts on this were very much influenced by a book that I read around that time when I was reinventing myself called Conversations with God by Neil Donald Walsh, which I think follows on well from Frankel. It doesn't really matter whether you believe in God or not. I think this speaks to us all. Remembering that everything you think, say and do is a reflection of what you've decided about yourself, a statement of who you are, an act of creation, and you're deciding who you want to be. And since reading Walsh, I've become quite fascinated by this idea of how we create our reality through a multitude of tiny actions. And I'd like to look at that through three different perspectives, this power of accumulation, which is my third main point. I'd like to follow on from Walsh with a bit of neuroscience at which point any real neuroscientists in the audience are probably groaning, expecting another piece of uh, neurocodswallop in a vain attempt to appear intellectual. And they could well be right, um, but I shall push on regardless, and please feel free to correct me afterwards. To the best of my knowledge, when we learn new things or form new habits, we form new neural connections in our brains that essentially hardwire the changes making them our new default way of being. When we first try something new, a, a new neural connection is, is forming, an axon reaches out from one neuron and shakes hands with a dendrite from a neighbouring neuron, forming a new connection. And the more we think that new thought or do that new thing, the connection gets stronger and stronger. New layers of myelin coat the connection to protect it and accelerate the transmission of the signal from one neuron to the next. This thicker myelin sheath helps improve all kinds of brainy tasks like reading, creating memories, playing a musical instrument, or making decisions. The same goes that neurons that fire together wire together. We literally change our brains through conscious effort that over time becomes less conscious and more, more habitual. 
Even an aha moment, when something suddenly pops into consciousness with enormous clarity, doesn't come out of nowhere, as I guess many of you in the room already know. Rather, it's the result of a steady accumulation of information. Over time, our level of understanding, the information that's accumulating in our brain, increases until we suddenly have that blinding flash of insight. Throughout history, inventors, scientists, researchers, and academics have had to immerse themselves in their subject and develop these neural networks until after years of obsessive hard work, inspiration strikes. And secondly, I'd like to look at the power of accumulation in relation to sustainability. When I give talks on an environmental theme, I often get people coming up to me afterwards and saying, well, yes, but what can I do? I'm just one person. How can I make a difference? And my response is this, that we're already making a difference every single day. We've had a number of big environmental disasters like the Deepwater Horizon, the Exxon Valdez, the Amoco Cadiz, Bhopal, Chernobyl. But most of our challenges, like climate change, plastic pollution, habitat destruction, overfishing, overpopulation, and so on, are the result of trillions of suboptimal decisions being made by 7.3 billion people every day, every week, every month, and every year. Having rowed around a fairly substantial proportion of the Earth's circumference at very slow speed, my perception is that Earth is surprisingly small, and it constantly amazes me that it's still able to support so many of us, although the science shows us that it's increasingly struggling to do so, and we are now living on borrowed time. But just as we're damaging the ecosphere by a huge multitude of tiny cuts, I believe that we can restore it by creating a multitude of opportunities for healing. Yes, we do need policy change to better protect our world, but meanwhile, there are things that we can all do, starting right now, to make a difference. I often refer to the metaphor of my ocean rowing voyages, where one oarstroke took me just a few feet, but 5,379,292 of them took me most of the way around the world. Who believes that I really counted every oarstroke? <laughs> no, but it was about 5 million. Um, I did get up to about 3 million and then lost count. Um, but I realized that every single one of those oarstrokes was required, and I could only take one oarstroke at a time, one after another. So for any of us who advocate for change, progress can often feel so slow as to be almost imperceptible, and the distant shore of the ocean very, very far out of sight. All we can do is keep the faith and keep putting one oarstroke in front of another, checking the GPS every so often to make sure we're still on course. And when I occasionally despair, I have to remind myself about tipping points, that change is often subtle and invisible until a critical mass of people have formed a new way of thinking and there's a sudden sea change. Not unlike neurons forging new networks that lead to an insight, seemingly overnight we can emerge from ignorance into the light and find it extraordinary that we ever tolerated slavery, legalized racism, religious wars, bigotry, or environmentally unsustainable behavior. My views might be unfashionable in an era that prefers the promise of instant gratification, but I'd like to contend that the most worthwhile endeavors can only be accomplished through hard graft, and lots of it. 
So I'd like to metaphorically raise a glass to all those unsung moments, the moments of boredom, frustration, mundanity, disillusionment and struggle, without which most of humanity's achievements would never have happened. And also to point out to anybody about to embark on such an undertaking, that in my experience, the more you've struggled to achieve your goal, the sweeter the sense of achievement when you get there. When I say that every action counts, no matter how small, I'm not saying that we can take a few small actions and that's enough. I'm saying that every action counts. Every time we buy something or throw something away or choose how to travel from A to B, we're casting a vote for the kind of future that we want. You may well have heard the story about a young girl who was walking along a beach upon which thousands of starfish had been washed up during a terrible, terrible storm. When she came to each starfish, she would pick it up and throw it back into the ocean. People were watching her with some amusement. Eventually, a man approached her and said, little girl, why are you doing this? Look at this beach, look at all these starfish. You can't save them all. You can't even begin to make a difference. For a moment, the girl seemed crushed, but then she bent down, picked up another starfish, and hurled it as far as she could into the ocean. She looked up at the man and said, well, I made a difference to that one. And I'd like to add a rider to that story. The next, man, the next time the man was on a beach after a storm, he saw a big crowd of people stooping and throwing, stooping and throwing. And as he drew closer, he saw the little girl and she was carrying a megaphone. She was calling out, thank you, everybody. We've saved all the starfish on this beach. Time to go to the next one. And they all piled into their cars and dashed off to the next beach. So I'm suggesting that, as well as doing the right thing in our own worlds, we also need to organize and convene and mobilize. This is very much on my mind at the moment. I'm currently teaching at Yale in the US, a country where the rule book is being rewritten on a daily basis by the current administration. We can't stand idly by while constitutional rights are violated and environmental legislation repealed. Robert Swan has said, the greatest threat to our planet is the belief that someone else will save it. It's down to us. We all have to step up and play our part. And finally, um, I'd like to reinforce the point that our lives are the sum total of our days. It all matters in a very literal sense. And this ties back to that obituary exercise that I did all those years ago, when I realized that if I carried on living as I was, I wasn't going to end up where I wanted to be. If we live to be 82 years old plus a bit, we have about 30,000 days on this earth. When you're young, 30,000 days might seem like an awful lot. But as I'm now rapidly approaching the 18,000 day mark, Suddenly, the 12,000 that remain to me, if I'm lucky, don't seem like so many. And I'm doing my best to make each one count. It's never too late to start living mindfully. John F. Kennedy used to tell the story of the great French Marshal Lyote, who once asked his gardener to plant a tree. The gardener objected that the tree was slow growing and would not reach maturity for 100 years. The Marshal replied, in that case, there is no time to lose. Plant it this afternoon. So as my passing thought, 
If everything we think, say and do is a statement of who we are, on an individual level, it is also true on a collective level. Who are we collectively as a human species deciding to be? What will make us proud of our obituary, our legacy? What collective narrative will serve us best as we go about our daily business, consuming, travelling, talking, writing, influencing, charting a course, choosing careers, choosing actions, forming neural connections, creating ourselves and creating our future? As I see it, we live in an era of extremes. We have extreme opportunities as technology, medicine, art and exploration open up realms previously undreamed of. But we also have extreme risks, which threaten to overtake us before we can fully exploit the opportunities. Lao Tzu said, great acts are made up of small deeds. And likewise, the extreme response that we now need to our extreme challenges will also be made up of many, many, many small deeds. None of us are too small, too young or too old to help create the kind of future that we want. So what will you do today to make the right kind of difference? And so as not to end on too serious a note, um, I'm going to show a final video. Earlier on, you saw the video of all the miserable bits, um, heavily edited. There were many, many more I could have shared with you. Um, but to bookend with that, I'd like to share a video of the highlights of my ocean rowing voyages. Um, which seem to strangely revolve around the end of all of them. Um, so this is finishing the Atlantic and finishing each of the three stages on my way across the Pacific. Um, the point of showing this is partly to allow me to reminisce and be happy about, um, about goals achieved, but also to reinforce that point that I made earlier, that the, the greater the struggle, the greater the challenge, the more amazing the sense of joy the greater the sense of achievement when that goal is achieved. I want to show how it, how it feels to dream and to do the extreme and to make that come true. Brand new day, belly 
Thank you very much indeed for a thought-provoking lecture. How to keep motivated is at times an issue, I'm sure, for everyone here. I know it is for me. And you said extreme times call for extreme measures, but uh, what you have done uh, was, is extremely extreme. Um, so thank you too for reminding us that every action counts and that it's down to us. So, to move on to next week, next week's lecturer takes us on a journey to the extremes of almost unimaginable distances and times. Professor Andy Fabian, uh, Director of the Institute of Astronomy here in Cambridge, will be speaking on extremes of the universe. So we leave this planet and go far away in space and time. However, we hope to see you here then for that. So finally, let's just show our appreciation to Rose Savage again for coming here tonight.